And we're going to be looking uh, at the story of David and how he was selected uh, by God. So uh, we're going to be looking at verse uh, 5 through um, the rest of the verse. And we're going to just kind of take a snapshot of this one section in 1 Samuel. Chapter 16, it says, verse 5. Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I'm sorry, verse uh, 5, yeah. Yes, in peace, I have come to sacrifice, O Lord. Consecrate yourself and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that a man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Ananab and had him pass in front of Samuel. And Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. And Jesse had had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to them, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are all these the sons that you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. And Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent him and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from this day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. And Samuel went to Ramah. Now the spirit had the Lord had departed from Saul, and the evil spirit of the Lord had tormented him. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, uh, in this snapshot we see in 1 Samuel 16, a glimpse of the kind of person that you select. And we see that David, in many ways, was not your uh, prototypical king. That we would not describe him as the one that we would want to select. He didn't really have all the qualities. He wasn't the firstborn. He wasn't the strongest, the biggest. And yet there was something about David that you saw that nobody else saw. And yet for us as, as human beings, we tend to look so much at the outward appearance of something. And we make judgments based upon that outward appearance. But in reality, Father, help us not to be like the world where we judge externally, but to be like you, to judge internally and to see where that internal transformation happens. So we pray that you would uh, guide us and lead us in this message of living our lives from the inside out. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We're going to play a game. Uh, this morning, okay, and, and, and the game is basically, I'm going to say it's called the fill the missing word. Now, all you have to do in unison is say the word that is missing in this particular phrase. Now, I think all of you or most of you should know these phrases, and if you do well, you'll, you'll get an A. If you don't, then, then you can't eat what's outside, so, so that's, I'm just kidding. We're going we're gonna to say these words. Okay, so here's the first one. What you see is not what you Good. You can't judge a book by its? Good. All that glitter is not? Good. Beauty is only skin? Okay. All of you guys get an A. You guys all get to eat. Now, here's the point of these uh, statements that I just made. These statements are statements that we often make to describe a particular sort of life situation. How often do we make the mistake 
of looking at the, the wrong thing or the external thing. Because what you see is not always what you get. You go to the store and you see a really nice package, you buy it and you open it up and, and, and it's not really what you thought it would be. How many of us uh, sort of read a book because the, the cover of the book looks really nice and we start reading it, it's like, well, you really can't judge the book by its cover. Or what about like you see something really nice, it looks really expensive and then you find out it's, it's really just plastic or it's not really what it's called out to be. Or how many of us look at beauty and we realize that true beauty is not external, but it's internal. All these statements point to the same uh, important life lessons that oftentimes we mistake the situation by misreading something. And whether it's meeting a, a person at work and, and we look at this person and we say, wow, this person is really strange. He, this person really smells. And then five years later, we end up marrying that person. Now, that happens to a lot of us, doesn't it? That the first impressions are not always the best impression because we realize after getting to know somebody that what we see is not always what we get. Think about how many times in your life where you misjudge something or you misread a situation. So the question for us is, why do we misread something? Well, I think there are three reasons that a lot of us misread. Number one is we misread because we look for the wrong things. In other words, we sort of are looking here, but we should be looking there. Uh, I, I remember story, hearing a story about a guy uh, named Pedro who was living on the border, and every day Pedro would go to the border and take a wheelbarrow filled with sand, and the border officer would look at Pedro, and he would look a little bit suspicious. So he would stop Pedro and say, let me see what's in your sand. So he would actually go and feel what's in the sand, and he couldn't find anything, so he let Pedro through. Next day, uh, Pedro came by with another uh, uh, pile of sand, and, and he was taking the wheelbarrow through. And the border officer said, you know what, I know you're doing something suspicious. Let me see. So he actually made him dump out the sand so he can kind of see what was inside. Again, nothing. So he put all the sand back and went across the border again. Uh, day after day, uh, for the next three months, uh, he would just do the same thing. And actually got to a point where the border officer kind of looked at him very strangely. And after about three straight years, the guard said to Pedro, I know that, that you are doing something wrong. One day I'm going to find out what you're doing. So after three years, Pedro stopped coming. And then a few months later, uh, as the border officer was, was tending the gate, this really expensive car drives in. And inside is Pedro. He has a brand new tailored suit, and he's driving. And the border officer stops and says, Pedro, I need to talk to you. And he ran up to him, and he asked him, so how are you doing so well? And Pedro's response was this. I brought 1,825 wheelbarrows across the border and sold them at a profit. Now, in this particular story, what he did was he took something that the border officer wasn't looking for. And so often in life, that's the way we kind of live our lives. We, we see and we look at the wrong things. And because we look at the wrong things, we make misjudgments. Well, you can't always judge a book by its cover. So, second reason I think is we misread is because we have the wrong expectations. In other words, our expectations 
influence our decision. Psychologists uh, basically say this, that expectations influence our subsequent events. In other words, when you feed somebody something, that their expectation changes. For example, when people are told that previous participants found this particular movie very funny and they showed similar preference, uh, as the people walked out of the movie theater, guess what happened? Because they were already given the information that it was really funny, that they responded in, in like. In other words, their expectations lined with the experience. It's what we call self-fulfilling prophecy. And when you see people whose sort of expectations are such, it kind of, you start fulfilling those expectations. Well, there's a third reason I think that a lot of us misread something, is we misread something because we have the wrong beliefs. In other words, we project our views onto something based on a wrong set of beliefs. We think that the externals are more important than the internals. For example, uh, there was a, a particular study, a guy named Joe who was a waiter, and he was at a busy restaurant. His goal was to maximize his tips. So Joe's belief was this, based upon his limited observation, based upon his belief that nicer dressed people are going to tip better than badly dressed people. So by acting on his beliefs, he set into motion a self-fulfilling prophecy by providing different levels of service based upon the customer's experience. And when the, customer, uh, when the restaurant is busy, well-dressed customers uh, do leave uh, above tips, but badly dressed customers do not. That's what he thought. But what ended up happening was not that way, that actually some of the badly dressed customers actually gave more than the poor, uh, than the well-dressed customers. Why? It's because oftentimes externals do not indicate the true nature of that person. You know, we make judgments, don't we, based upon how a person looks. Or because somebody is from a particular ethnic background or somebody from a social class, we assume that because they're from a class or because they look a certain way, that they're going to have to behave a certain way. Now, sometimes that may be true in some stereotypes, but in reality, every person cannot be judged just based upon their externals. And it becomes problematic. We, we all have stereotypes of people, don't we? You look at somebody and says, oh, okay, all Asians are this, or all uh, uh, Hispanics are this. And whatever those expectations are, or whatever those beliefs are, the wrong beliefs often produces wrong types of action. Well, I think all of these are pro uh, problematic because we have a limited perspective. In life, we don't always see what is truly there. And in this particular story, we're going to see that as the nation of Israel was looking for a new king because God had rejected Saul, that the king that Samuel was looking for, ironically, was not the king that God had in mind. See, Samuel was a prophet of God. And we see in chapter 16, verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as the king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Now, in Samuel's mind, by the way, the story goes, is that in Samuel's mind, he had an idea of what type of king would be. It was somebody probably similar to Saul. Somebody tall, somebody handsome, somebody a warrior. But then in verse 7 it says this, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that a man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Here in this verse we see a contrast between the world's idea 
of success, between God's idea of success. And if I were to summarize today's message, it's really simply this, that we are called to live our lives from the inside out, not from the outside in. Now, as we talked about this last week, you have to understand the story of Saul before you understand the story of David. Now, I'm going to show you a map of Israel. And this is during the time of Saul. Now, what's interesting is that Israel, sort of in the orange, is surrounded by all these kingdoms. There were the Philistines on the coast, there were the Moabites, there were the Amalekites, the Edomites, the Ammonites, the Canaanites, the Phoenicians. All these were different kingdoms that surrounded Israel. Now here's the interesting thing. Back in the Old Testament, we know that God had established a law to dictate for the people that God was going to be the king over Israel. And that was already established, that the priests were to interpret and represent God, and that the Israelites were to follow God as their king. But we know from the book of Judges that people said, you know what, we need a political leader, not just a religious leader. So God established these judges or these uh, uh, political leaders. And these judges were both spiritual oftentimes and, and, and they were uh, military leaders as well. But again, they were under the authority of God. But when the last judge, Samuel, as he was going to his people, people were crying out. Look at all these different nations that surrounded Israel. And, 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 these, and these Israelites said, we want a king just like everybody else. And as a result, God said, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. The lesson in the life of Saul is simply this, that Saul was selected because they had rejected God. That they wanted a king just like what the world had. They wanted a king that would represent them just like the Ammonites, the Amalekites. And, and, and really what they were saying at the bottom line is this, that we are rejecting God's authority over our lives. And so who does God send? God sends the person that they pray for, which is ironically this, the ideal king. His, his name is Saul. And from a world's perspective, he was idea because he had everything. He was strong, he was tall, he was smart, he was the warrior that everybody wanted. Uh, the Bible describes him kind of interesting, his head and shoulders, literally above everybody. He was like, he was almost like you looked up to him literally because he was that kind of guy. But there was something missing in Saul. And that core thing that was missing was that his heart was not toward God. Even though he did the religious thing, he went to church, he, he went to temple, he did all those things that a good Jewish person would do, but something was missing at his very core. And what was missing was this, that his heart was not toward the things of God. That what Saul wanted was, was for himself. And so we see that after he gets selected to be king, he goes on a military expedition in, in chapter 13. And in 1 Samuel 13, and he goes on and he conquers. And, and before he's about to conquer, by the way, he gathers his troops together and they're waiting for Samuel because Samuel said, I'll be coming to make a sacrifice before you guys go into battle. And all the people started getting scared. And so you know what Saul did? Instead of waiting patiently, for Samuel to come, he kind of overreacted. So he gathers all his troops together and he takes on the priestly function, which is forbidden in the law. And he actually makes the sacrifice on behalf of Samuel. And Samuel comes and says, what have you done? And Samuel says, well, because you were late, I just had to do this because everybody was getting scared. I think Samuel wanted to say to Saul, Saul, 
That's why you're a leader. You need to have, have everybody be patient until I come. And, and that showed you the nature and the character of Saul, that he couldn't wait for God. His heart was not in tune with God. And as a result, uh, Samuel says to Saul, because of this, God has rejected you over king of Israel. And I'm going to find someone else who's going to be a man after my own heart. Well, we know that in chapter 15, uh, another scenario happens that kind of demonstrates the nature of Saul. That Saul uh, is in another battle, and God tells Saul specifically, wipe out the whole nation. But what ended up happening is instead of wiping out the whole nation, he saved some of the best cattle, some of the best uh, possessions and jewelry. He even spared the life of the king. And when Samuel came and said, what have you done? And Saul said, well, I kind of made the decision. I made the executive decision to, you know, to keep some of this because, you know what? These things are good. Why, why waste it by sacrificing it? And the very thing that Samuel says is this. Saul, you have not been obedient. You have rejected God. Instead of uh, sacrificing, what you should have done is you should have been obedient. And because of that, Saul's ultimate destiny was was erased to be the king of Israel. And then God selects this young man. And in this story in chapter 16, it begins with the selection process. Now, let's go back to the, uh, verse 1. It says, the Lord said, how long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him, the king over Israel? Uh, in many ways, Samuel had a lot of hope in Saul. He thought he could change him. He thought he could make him the kind of king that God wanted. And, and Saul wasn't that king, and Samuel was mourning. In verse 2, but Samuel said, how can I go? Well, Saul will hear it, about it and kill me. In other words, he was afraid of, of what Saul would do. And God sends Samuel to the family of Jesse. And, and in this family of Jesse, we see that God now is going to select the king. But the first thing that I want you to notice is this. The reason that Saul was eject, rejected and God's had to select a new king is because of this principle. That a person who pursues the heart of God values obedience over sacrifice. Now, what I mean by that is this, that, that if you look at Saul's life, that he lived his life in disobedience to God. And he valued, sacrifice, he, he valued the religious duty rather than having his heart inclined to pursue God wholly. And I think there's a lot of people like that. Who, you know, we are Christians in name only. We do all the religious things. We go to church on Sunday. We join a small group. But there's some of us where our core desire is not God. Our core desire is us. And I know a lot of Christians who live like this, that God sort of becomes an appendix to their life. And when things go wrong, that's when they cry out to God. See, the heart that God desires is not a heart that is half-hearted, that sort of using God as a way to kind of get what you want. See, people who use God to get what they want often end up being bitter and angry at God. And here's why. We get bitter and angry at God because God never does what we want him to fully do. Or we blame God for something because something happens. And here's the kind of person that God desires. He's not a God who desires somebody who does the religious observance. He is a God who desires a full, committed, wholehearted dependence and pursuit of him. And Saul wasn't that person. You know, one of the essential ingredients of faith in the Bible is obedience. 
when the Bible says to, uh, when Samuel says to Saul, God wants obedience, not sacrifice, what he's describing is a true nature of faith. Here is where faith is real. A lot of times we think faith is just believing in something. But when you look at the nature and quality of faith, faith is always tied with obedience. In Hebrews 11, uh, 8 to 10, Abraham packed up and went. It says, he obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. True obedience listens and does. True obedience always follows through with what God demands. In the Old Testament, the word, Hebrew word that translated obedience means simply to hear. In the New Testament, it gets more detailed. The Greek word literally means to hear, to obey. It's a state of submission. It's attentive hearkening. When the Bible says, are you listening to the voice of God? He's not just saying, do you auditory, auditorily hear? What he's saying is, are you willing to obey? The true nature of faith is obedience. And in 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. How many of us know Christians, and maybe we're like this too, is we think that somehow we earn God's favor by just doing religious things. You know, the Old Testament uh, people, they lived like that, that as long as I did the, old, you know, the rituals, then, then God must honor that. And we, even in the church, do that. We go to church, we tithe, we join a small group. All those things can help nurture our faith and our heart, but those are the things that God's going to look at. What God desires is a heart of obedience, and the thing I learned about obedience is that obedience has to be trained. In other words, God calls, we follow. And as we follow, then God calls again. And sort of this, this track, as God develops our faith, we obey. And here's the thing. There are times that God's going to call us to do things that may not always make sense. Talk to your neighbor down the street or, or do this or do that. And as we respond in obedience, our faith begins to grow. Saul's problem was that he, when he heard the voice of God, instead of doing what God wanted, he did what he wanted. There's an interesting uh, story told about Arabian horses and how they trained them in battle. And these beautiful horses these, uh, are, are taught in the desert. And in one particular type of training, it's, it's, it seems pretty inhumane and pretty uh, intense. These uh, horses are made to run and get really tired and really thirsty. And at one particular uh, moment, they call the horses to run to the place where there's water, like a, like a pond. And, and the horses gallop at full speed, waiting to crunch, quench their thirst. And they all get to the edge of this pond, and they're ready to dive in. And the trainer blows his whistle, and they have to stop. And if they don't stop, then they have to do this again. Now, some of you say, that's pretty cruel. Why would they do that? And the reason for that is, just, is really simple, they said, is because these, the lives of the soldiers are dependent on the obedience of the horses. If the horses do not obey, even when they want to disobey, when they, 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 if they obey and are able to conquer their own disobedience, then they're going to be good horses. And I thought about this story, and I said, you know, and in some ways, God trains our obedience like that. 
there are times where we want to do our own thing. God says, stop. I know what's better for you. And so the thing here is this, that the first point of obedience is, is better than sacrifice. If you want to be a, a person that, that pursues the heart of God, remember that. It goes all the way back to what faith is all about. The second point is this, that our heart is more critical than our height. Our internals are more important than our externals in the eyes of God. Going back to chapter, uh, chapter 16, I love the progression. So Samuel goes, goes to the house of Jesse. Jesse is probably one of the town elders, one of the leaders. And, and Jesse is sort of given the clue to bring all your sons. He has no idea why, but probably in Jesse's mind, he, you know, something's going to happen, whether they're going to be part of Saul's army or, or something that, you know, these seven sons that he has, he brings the seven of the best. And he lines them up before Samuel. And one by one, they parade through. And God says, nah, 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 nah. All seven get rejected. One of the interesting things in this verse, it says this. Samuel even thought, surely this one is chosen. Uh, surely this is the one that God has chosen. But God says, no, nah, I've rejected him as well. And here's the reason why. The re- because these men know... No, they may have had the military qualifications to be good warriors, good leaders, but they were missing something. At the core of their heart was not a pursuit of God. Their heart was not in the right place. And I think for us as Christians, the thing that God desires is the formation of our hearts. You know, even in the church, we, we can sort of mistake to think that God honors uh, or God judges us by what we do. And that's the danger, isn't it, as Christians? That we judge each other by what we do, how we look. And, and, and even in terms of what's your profession, well, I'm this. Oh, that means you have a higher status. Where do you live? Oh, I live in this city. Well, that means you have a higher status. And we often use the same criteria as the world. But the thing that God looks at is not that. God does not choose the, the things of the world, the strong things, the intelligent things. What God chooses oftentimes are the things that, that we wouldn't even consider. And the most important thing that God looks at is the heart. And yet what's sad is that we live in a culture where the heart is the least thing that we look at. Because we can't really look at the heart on, on Instagram, can we? We can't look at the heart in social media. And yet in our day and age, that, that's kind of the way we evaluate success. How do you look? What do you do? See, this problem is, has been a problem throughout the ages. And especially uh, back in the 70s, there was a song um, written by a girl, a uh, lady, who uh, writes about when she was 17. And the, the title of the song is 17. She goes, I learned the truth at 17 that love was meant for beauty queens and high school girls with clear skin faces while those of us with ravaged faces lacking in social grace, graces desperately remained at home. A song like that resonates with teenagers. And here's the thing that I think God calls us as Christians to do is to remember this, that what God desires is a heart that's pursuing him solely rather than pursuing everything else. And here's the last point of the story is this, that our weakness is the source of our greatest strength. Our weakness is the source of our greatest strength. Now, in this particular story, What seems ironic is this, 
that David is going to be groomed by Saul. Not to be the next king, but really Saul's, uh, I mean, David's ability is uh, something that, that Saul needed, but not to what you would think. See, the reason that Jesse didn't bring David, I think part of, uh, he was the youngest, and in the Jewish culture, the oldest gets preference. Maybe another part was that David was really young, and he was small. He was a shepherd. He was smart, but his dad didn't consider uh, David sort of the leader of leaders. He was sort of the runt of the litter. And that kind of reminds us that, that God doesn't always select the strongest, the smartest, the most beautiful, the most talented. That throughout the Bible, the person that God often selects are the ones that you least are, are, are likely to succeed. And you know what? One thing that, Saul, that David had that got into Saul's court was not his warrior-like ability. The way he got into David's, uh, Saul's court was his ability to play music. Look at this in verse four, 14. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit had, the Lord had tormented him. In other words, because he had rejected God, Saul, that his, his, his spirit was being uh, uh, tormented constantly by Satan himself. Verse 15, Saul's attendant said to him, see, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let the Lord command his servants to search for someone who can play the harp. He will play when the evil spirit comes upon you and you will feel better. In other words, Saul, you need to find somebody who can kind of soothe your anxiety. And the person that Saul chooses is a guy, a small little boy who just was a musician. Now what's beautiful about this is that one of the characteristics, one of the things that describes David in the Bible is he was, not only was he a musician, he was a worshiper of God. There's a whole book in the Bible called the Book of Psalms that is really lyrics to worship songs that he wrote. And it's, it's an, isn't it interesting that, that as we, before service, we sing songs before we hear the message. Why? Because the heart is, declares the glory of God through music. And so David's ability to play music becomes his entry point to the court of Saul. And so David comes and he plays the harp, and, and that becomes the beginning of, of David's story. Well, I think about David. It reminds me that God oftentimes does not choose the things that we would look at. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says in, in verse 7, he says, To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing revelations, he says, Three times I pleaded to the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest in me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults and in hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, I am strong. The greatest character trait for a person who pursues the heart of God is a person that lives and walks in humility, that recognizes their own sense of weakness. And if you think about it, really, isn't that the gospel story? That all of us are weak because of sin, that we have fallen away from God, and as a result of that, there is nobody who is righteous, not even one. And because we are unrighteous before God, Christ became weak on our behalf so that we might become children of God. And I think what this story reminds us is this, 
that God takes the lowliest, the weakest, the most pitiful uh, sinner and gives that person life and brings them royalty. Like David was lifted up, not because of his ability, he was lifted up because his heart was inclined and dedicated to the things of God. Do you know what happens when a person who is so, who pursues God with all their heart, soul, and mind, is that they begin to influence others. And others begin to see them differently. Francis Chan tells a a story. He had a sermon entitled, Think Hard, Stay Humble. And he tells a story about a guy named Vaughn who radiated the love of Christ around him. Francis says, a few years ago, a missionary came to our church and told this beautiful story about sharing the gospel with a remote tribe in Papua New Guinea. At the end of the story, the missionary said, I should really give credit to, my, to Vaughn, my former youth pastor, who loved me and inspired me to live for Christ and to share the gospel with others. He says, next week, another guy came to our church and he challenged us to start sponsoring kids living in poverty. The second speaker concluded by saying this, I'm involved in this ministry because of my youth pastor. His name was Vaughn. I found out these two guys from the same youth group Then the next week, another speaker named Dan told us about the ministry of a rescue mission in downtown L.A. After Dan's talk, I casually mentioned, it was so weird. The last two weeks, both of of these speakers mentioned how they were impacted by their youth pastor named Vaughn. And Dan looked surprised. He says, Vaughn, he impacted me. Let me tell you about Vaughn. He says, he's a pastor in San Diego now. He takes people into the dumps in Tijuana where kids are picking through the garbage. He goes, I was with Vaughn in Tijuana. We would walk the city, and the kids would run to him, and he would show them the deep love and affection for them. He would hug them and give gifts and food for them. He figured out to how to get them showers. The whole time I was thinking, I kept on thinking, Francis said, if Jesus was on earth, I think it, would be, it, it is what it would feel like to walk beside him. He just loved everyone that he ran into. And I think about this story and I say, wow, what a great testimony of a man whose heart had been transformed by the message of Jesus. And as a result, he then, his heart, who pursued God, started to influence those around them. So as I think about the story going full circle, what kind of person does God desire us to be? He desires men and women like us whose heart is in the right place, whose heart pursues God with all our heart, soul, and mind. And so I want to ask you this question as, you, as we go through this series is, what is your heart inclined toward? What are you pursuing? Because the only thing that can tr- truly transform us is not the things around us, but it's the person above us. That Christ is the only source of our transformation because he died rose again so that you can have life. So in this few moments, I'm going to have you bow your heads, and I'm just going to ask that question. Where is your heart inclined? Let's pray.